Hello, and welcome to episode two of The Blend Sessions. I'm Theo van den Bruke, and I'm your host for a series of conversations on culture, recorded with Chivas Regal blended Scotch whiskey at their bar in East London. Each week, we bring together two creative minds to talk about how collaboration and the blending of different skills have shaped their work and been the key to their success. The discussions cover art, photography, food, fashion and literature, and are an inspiring, informative look at how the creative process works in these worlds. For our second episode, we bring together two of the most acclaimed chefs working in London today, Jeremy Lee and Jackson Boxer. At the Brunswick House Cafe and Quo Vardis, respectively, they have taken the best elements of an array of cooking styles and use them to update and invigorate British dining and London's restaurant scene. I really love these two. They have a lot to say and a real passion for what they do, which always makes an interview run more smoothly, if a little difficult to get questions in, as you'll hear. So sit back and enjoy Jackson Boxer and Jeremy Lee in conversation with Shivas Regal Scotch Whiskey in episode two of The Blend Sessions. So I guess, firstly, it'd be nice to learn how you both got into food. And I guess, Jackson, that's slightly an obvious one for you. All got into each other. Um, All got into each other. So (laughs) taking a turn. You know, I I think food is just one of those incredibly universal things because everyone who eats, one would hope, takes great pleasure in it. I came from uh, a family whose appreciation for each other was only probably outdone by our appreciation for eating. So as a result, food was always a very happy thing that we all gathered together for. I think one of the interesting things is my parents were never particularly interested in cooking. What they loved was eating and entertaining. So meals would often be very simple, but very good. I grew up in a, well, I was, my parents were about 20 when I was born. So I grew up in a big, rather shambolic house with all their friends. It was the kind of university house, really. And uh, no evening was complete without a big kind of pot of soup on the table and a, an open bottle of wine, open bottle of whiskey, and, and a lot of, you know, heated and, and exciting conversations. So my, my upbringing always centered around this idea was that food is something that everyone gathers and gets excited about and kind of falls in love over and, you know, celebrates each other with. Um, well, getting into cooking happened slightly later in that I had um, two amazing grandmothers, one of whom, I think this is probably a link between me and Jeremy actually, is that uh, we, we both have a, there's a strong, deep-rooted maternal familial instinct on our, our cooking, which is that I had two grandmothers. One was an incredible farmhouse cook, uh, was my mother's mother, who lived on a farm and made her own butter every day and had the most extraordinary vegetable garden and gave me my first vegetable patch when I was four and taught me to grow lettuce and salad. And, and really, since then, I never really looked back from the joy of, of being able to kind of be a master of, of, of everything I ate. And on the other side was, was my incredible grandmother, Arabella, who was the most exquisite, considered and zen-like cook. And I'd never seen anything like this before, but she picked me up every week after school from when I was a very small child. And we'd go and do something fun, and then she'd take me home, and she'd cook me something. It'd be very simple. It would just be kind of sausages and mash. But she'd spend two hours painstakingly peeling the potatoes and dicing them. <laughs> she obviously achieved such incredible inner peace and satisfaction from doing these simple pedestrian and quotidian tasks with deep care and profound dedication. Uh, not just for me and not for the pleasure I got, because I wouldn't have cared either way whether she'd just mashed them with a fork or, you know. It was it was something that she that she took a craftsman's pride in, in cooking. And and this made me realise that actually the cooking and food are actually quite quite distinct things. Food is something we really enjoy and, and can share with other people. But cooking is a very interior and personal uh, craft. And so for me, very much, it was these at the age of five or six, having this kind of realisation, this is uh, the two things that were intertwined that fascinated me. Um, I'll leave it at that. Jeremy? I think the thing that struck me when I was growing up, it was coming, Britain was coming out of rationing and was in the depths of the Cold War and cooking at home was way down on the list of priorities. 
And I lucked out having two parents that delighted in it, and dad insisted on a pudding every night and was meticulous about what he ate. And mum was particularly good at it. She was the daughter of a fallen duty agent in India, and indeed was born there just before the Second World War, and came back and to Britain, and never went back to India, as happened to a great many people. The world changed so dramatically. And for young genteel ladies of distressed means, the only thing available to them at that time was either to become a teacher or a private cook. And so after Athol Crescent in Edinburgh, she went from Dundee, where she was living, and trained under the extraordinary auspices of this cursed Greek, Mrs. Persopolis, who ran the Athol Crescent School, which was a great cooking school. We actually did have great domestic science schools back then. And back to Dundee she went as a teacher. And then the world changed again, and the grammar schools came in. And so it was always tossed on the seas, my parents. You know, it was one massive social upheaval after another. And when they met in the late 50s and married um, and settled down, and they couldn't quite afford a house in Dundee, so they bought a plot of land out, just outside in the foothills of the Sidlows, which back then were just raspberry fields, as far as I could see. There's an enormous great thing. The legendary raspberry fields of um, the Tay Valley, down the Vale of Strathmore, right along the Tay. But again, it began to be whittled down by, you know, just the strange exigencies of the Cold War. And indeed, it was Czechoslovakia who started mining <laughs> as I mean, of all things. You know, and so now, sadly, the land I grew up in is not Raspberry Fields. You have to travel very far inside. But there's still a few villages remaining which still have, amazingly, bakeries survived. And mum and dad were brilliant shoppers. And so they loved to get in the car and take their kids and go shopping for things that we would eat. And so it was down the east, you could fight for longestine and crab and lobster, and then up for the prize and bridies and arbor and smokies. So that was the realm of the herring came into our life. And not only could you get a buckling, but you could get a bloater. There was red herring, believe I was. And then there's a black herring, yeah. which was so paper thin you could wedge it into the town of a ship, you know, even go the further And so my parents were incredibly excited by this, and then we grew up with it. And so with the spots back then. I remember the courgette appearing in 1974 with the greatest glamour imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> Overtook the avocado vinaigrette for supper. So food has been very strong in our family. And my grandmother was a great cook, my mother was a brilliant cook, and, and when I started cooking, the restaurant seemed to enjoy now was not even a glimmer in Terence Conrad's eye. And when restaurants really began to kick in, I lucked out, it was when I first started cooking. So I got to work with amazing people like Simon Hopkinson and Alistair Little, and who were the godfathers of modern British cooking. And they started bringing back old dishes while they were mucking around with Italian cooking or something. Mm. And this strange thing of eclectic cooking or modern European cooking was born. The blessed they got thrown out of the window quite, quite as quick. And from them I learned, you know, how you can translate cooking at home and half into restaurants. And there was an enormous appetite because people didn't want spare plates and blips and blobs and, you know, the things going on. They wanted hearty fare. Mm. And once hearty fare started being accepted in restaurants and people started getting over the thing that this is, oh, I could do that at home. Why would I pay for this in a restaurant? It was an almighty leap and it changed everything. So the green baize door was pulled down, the curtains were pulled away, rooms became white and light and the mm. restaurant business boomed. And it's amazing, and we're the heirs to that, and I hope you're enjoying it too.
on that note, I guess it would be nice to hear a little bit more. I know you were uh, you worked with folks Henderson for a while, didn't you? Didn't you? No, my or was it very was briefly? It was more with Margot. More with Margot. Okay. His, his, his amazing wife, who uh, gave me my first job when I was sixteen, which was um, I was her babysitter actually. I mean, that was a crazy thing. I used to when I was doing my head, I was like take her beautiful children home and cook them tea and do their homework, put them to bed, and then I get prodded awake at two in the morning by by Margot. Um, being like, you, you, I'm so, so sorry we're so late. You, you've got to go home. It's really late. You've got school tomorrow. Come and have a drink before you go because it's really cold. And there would be there would be a glass of whiskey waiting to send me off into the night. But there'd always be the most extraordinary gathering of people around the table, not least Jeremy, which is how I made friends with Jeremy when I was about That's 16 or so. Um, <laughs> on odd occasion. But also just an extraordinary range of, of people, you know, um, designers and artists and choreographers and curators, just the most incredible people. And I realized that actually, while I've always been fascinated by food and restaurants, that actually working in restaurants gave you this incredible license to fraternize between all sorts of really interesting creative industries and to blend a whole load of creative spheres in a way that you were never actually going to be a threat to anyone. You were going to be seen as a kind of wonderful unifying um, component so that, you know, a whole range of people could eat in your restaurant and they could all be fierce rivals, but you could still be their pal. And, and this was kind of magical for me because as a young man, I was very interested, I was quite reserved and quite bookish and very shy and very awkward. As most, well, thought about no one, lots of teenagers are, no one was quite as bad as me. But, you know, I, I definitely had an idea that when I reached adulthood, I wanted to do something that was kind of exciting and challenging. But I also was terrified of, of, of the kind of the conflicts and the politics of adulthood. And, and, and really, I couldn't even navigate a schoolyard. How was I going to navigate the real world? Uh, and so to see that, that to kind of occupy this, this role of, of host and cook and, you know, hospitalier was, was, was to kind of draw people together in this marvellous way. It was kind of absolutely thrilling to me. So mm-hmm. I very quickly positioned Margot to give me a job and she gave me a job as a pop first. And as I said, over the next few years, I'd work for her or her friends or anyone who needed someone to come and peel potatoes in the kitchen as often as possible. And I think this was the kind of always the, the thing at the front of my mind, that this is an extraordinary world to inhabit, to draw things together, to, to kind of to mix a huge realm of different artistic endeavours, which is also something I really love. It's the, the nice thing about cooking is that you spend a lot of time working very hard to put things on a plate, but actually you don't matter. You know, the food matters to an extent, but actually what matters in the restaurant are you, mm-hmm. the person who's eating and the person you're eating with. That's all that matters. And I, I love that. I love that about cooking is that we kind of invest a huge amount of ourselves in something which actually really isn't about us. It's very self-effacing. And I, th- I think that is, um, you know, that's what's kind of so compelling about it. I think it's also interesting because you're talking about bringing other people from different realms together and blending them. But what you're doing in your roles, particularly the two of you, because there is a very traditional kind of restaurateur that doesn't do this or you get the impression they don't. Um, you bring together being a chef, a publican, a barkeep, a members club owner, a, a media, obviously media personality. A lot of chefs do that. But you kind of embody all of these roles. And I think both of you, it's fair to say, do that. Do you think that's an important thing? Because it happens in a lot of industries where you have to do many, many things things all at once or is that something you have you've created as your own niche is that I, I, I think that, that, that it's, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to do as many things as interest you and as, as excite you and I think I feel immensely privileged to have the opportunity to be in my kitchen all day today and then take off my my apron and come over and blend whiskey and then hang out with you guys I mean what a what a joy I can't think of a finer way to spend the evening um, I do th- you know there are obviously there's not to say that this is the right way to do it I just I've got a, a 
total disability to say no to anything that sounds interesting or exciting. Um, and <laughs> so I that's, that's what it possibly, is, really. I think possibly, and that's, that's one of the great things I learned from, from Jeremy and from Fergus and from all the people who've been great influences on me, is that, you know, if it seems exciting and you think you can do it, go for it. You know, there are no limitations to what you can do. And the more stimulated and excited and uh, galvanized you are by the world around you, the more joie de vivre you'll bring to your, your cooking and your hospitality, which is absolutely crucial. It's very mm. important to be in love with your life so that you can make going out to eat in a place as exciting and as life-affirming as possible. I mean, that's the point of restaurants. It, you know, what, Jeremy, what's your fantastic yeah, Jeremy. It doesn't matter when you show up, but it's how you leave. Oh, yes. Now, Madame Prunier starting her amazing book from her eponymous restaurant in St. James' Street. She said, I don't care that she was feeling cabinet ministers at this stage. <laughs> how they arrive, the glower on their faces is my job. When they leave, they're smiling. And that was a very simple thing. And then I think that was taken up by people like Terence Conrad, who they were the ones who were pivotal in bringing in the jeans and tiara thing. You know, no longer did you have to dress up, and it was a stuffy affair, and boring, and you didn't sit there. And it was actually torpor to sit in the restaurant. The wine was good. But then the focus went on the food, and then the fact that it was a pleasure, and the fact that you were relaxed in an environment, and it was convivial. And now an enormous thing that's happened is long, great tables. Everyone wants to sit down on a great crowd, and they want a buzz in the room, and that's a very important thing. And that stuck a chord with me. My parents were not even remotely interested in quiet children. We were encouraged for absolutely, we were swinging from the chandeliers and trees all the time. Near death every five minutes and just one going, not again, driving into the Dundee Royal Infirmary again. <laughs> another part of my body in past and just went, for God's sake. But there was certainly a massive thing harking back, certainly to the late 60s, where cooking was a dead-end job. And it was looked on as this strange, strange thing. It was not something that middle-class kids went into, especially being to a private education, which my mum and dad bust their guts. My dad was an illustrator, mum was a teacher, but they bust themselves to do it, thinking it was the right thing to do. And so, but being the third son, well, third son's normally going to the church. <laughs> uh, so kitchen it was. And, well, not kitchen it was, I went in as a waiter. Oh, and I was so rubbish at it and, and talked far too much to the customers because all my parents' friends anyway. And when I came back in the kitchen and dropped a whole pan of red cabbage right down my pristine white jacket in front of me, just like, for God's sake. And that strange British thing, promote the problem. So I got yeah. put in the kitchen. So <laughs> very strange. Anyway, the cabbage didn't stick, but the job did, which is very nice. And um, the rest, as they say, is history, which is a, and a remarkable one, because I had a chef who kind of kicked me out of my, any reverie I had of just carrying on. He said, what on earth are you doing? You know, London's busting and beckoning. And he sent me to London to work with his, head, his old head chef in Boodle's on St. James's Street. And that was the last time I ever wore one of those tall white hats and used that dirty four-letter word beginning with C. We'll never, never use that language again. You know, been, you know. And, and from then on, I never, all the kitchens I worked in, everyone used their front name. I locked out. I didn't have to work in those rigorous, rigid, very military-style kitchens, um, which were quite brutal. Um, and I think the remarkable realm of the Marco Pierre White wild crazy kids mm, they really are responsible more for the celebrity chef thing mm. than anyone um, and it was vital for, for blowing the lid on it all everybody wants to be a chef there's a romance to kitchen style that never existed mm. and suddenly you know when you can make a restaurant out of a phone box you know <laughs> it's and it's immensely good fun and the pop-ups have engaged people I mean Folk are now engaged, and mm. food is a daily part of civilized life. 
it has now become, as you say, quotidian. It is something folk enjoy and really enjoy and are happy to spend money on. Whereas 20 years ago, trying to get folks to shell out a lot, mm. you know, and no matter how cheap it is, it's a lot. And the prices in London now are devastating. We should come on to this actually as well. Rents. Well. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who hasn't been to either of your restaurants, can you tell us a little bit about exactly what you do and the kind of, I guess, the key dishes? I know they change a lot because it's all about seasonal produce and locally sourced, mm. obviously, but the kind of tenants of your restaurants and also the way you operate your kitchens, which you've just touched on, Jeremy, but I'm very intrigued to know more about, I'm sure the rest of you are, how you operate your well, kitchens. Jer and Jeremy's kitchen's like a, the, the, a, a grand battleship. It's like a royal yacht or something. It's got <laughs> hundreds of people running around in the most elegant formations and total wow. synchronicity. My kitchen is, is scrappy as hell and it's kind of three or four of us just cooking like frantic because we've got, uh, it's a tiny kitchen with a rather large room to, and that kind of seems to be never not full of people, which is wonderful, but it's kind of very relentlessly intense and quite pressurized. And so for a, lot, a long time, my lasting conviction has been, you know, if, if you're gonna try and cook something that's beautiful and wonderful, just start with things that are really good anyway and then don't do very much to them. I think that's kind of, that's really, really the secret to it. I think what's been fantastic, to come back to Jeremy's point about the kind of enormous, rapturous enthusiasm for food, which we witness, is, is the kind of growth of knowledge. People are genuinely engaged in what they eat and where it comes from. Uh, they want to know, right down to the provenance, where's the farm? What was the name of the pig? Yeah. You know, mm. and, you know, they really yeah, care. Yeah. They really enjoy it. And I think, uh, you know, this is, this is absolutely fantastic that people are showing, taking such pleasure in finding out absolutely where these things come from. And I think what, you know, really all we're concerned with is using our enviable network of incredible suppliers and producers that we, we have available to us in London as the centre of this kind of regional hub of what used to be Europe, and, and be able to kind of mine it for all its, 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 its most exquisite and, and exciting and thrilling and romantic and far-flung um, products. And, and that's what we do. You know, writing a menu is really just kind of calling up everyone you know who makes delicious things and saying, what have you got? You know, whether that's Neil's Yard Cheese or whether it's one of our butchers in New Yorkshire. Yeah. Uh, or your or own family growers, farm. Or, no? or my farm, yeah, where we grow a lot of our own produce. Um, Which is Pound Farm, just for the audience. West Sussex and And throwing it together and just thinking, you know, the, what will be delicious? What will be exciting? And that's, you know, really, if we're excited by it, the people who come and eat there are going to be excited by it. And, mm. and that, that is not necessarily always the case, but people seem to really, really love that. Yeah. It's made my job so much easier. And uh, I mean, and you know, it's not radically different from <laughs> everyone else, but you know, it's what we do. But beautifully so. And I love speaking to our producers and suppliers. And it is an amazing list, you're quite right. And these people are amazing. And one of the great frustrations actually is that because we've got seasonal cooks, it all comes at once. Mm -hmm. We all deal with the club. And brilliantly, what's happening now is with more and more our producers, we're saying, Look, we, we love your meat, you know, but we, there's only so much we can do with a lamb shoulder that hasn't been done a million times before. You know, that should go out to the great public now, and you should be forcing yourself out there. And more of that is going in. And we're more and more interested in the vegetables, because that's where, incredibly, there is an enormous dearth in this, you know, remarkably arable mm. land that we live in, these extraordinary islands. And there's 7,000, you know, 700 islands in the British Isles. That gives us an amazing coastline. We don't eat fish. Mm. Most of it goes to Spain still. Mm. And so there's a strange politics behind it all. Shellfish is fantastically expensive, annoying as hell. <laughs> and yet you step over across the channel and it's plentiful and cheap and, and consumed daily. And it's the restaurants that seem to have been able to start bridging the gap there and helping 
and giving Port the confidence to say, no, we can sell this. And if I did have it at home last night, there's no reason why I can't have it in the restaurant. Now it's, it's part of daily life, and that makes a huge difference to what we do. And I had done this smoked tail sandwich off a back of the blueprint back in the day. It's one of the best yeah. things. <laughs> Very good. And we, and they, and they, they've been sitting on the menu quite happily for ages. Um, that's because we had three days to open this business. It's insane what we did. Harking back, I have no idea how we did it. But we put the smoked tail sandwich in the box. And blow me if of all the things that might signify or define what you do, a sandwich. <laughs> mental. The smoked tail sandwich is the best thing ever. Yeah. And then they said, but yeah. the sustainability people went crazy. And I said, we buy five smoked tail a week. <laughs> five. You know, it's not 500, not yeah. 500, five, yeah. you know, this is not an estuary being demolished to feed our ridiculous appetites. And this lovely thing, which is nothing more than smoked tail and mustard and horseradish mm. and bread. But somehow it works. Mm. And because it's a sandwich and has become this something sort of quintessentially British about it, strange and unusual, odd, eccentric as hell, even I'd have to admit that one. But it somehow works. And it, it sort of sums us up in some crazy way mm. that it is slightly odd, a bit peculiar, but wonderfully delicious, generous and abundant. Yeah. That's the kind of cooking I like, where mm. it's just, um, I think Emily Green summed it up once. She said, oh, him. He serves up flavour the way Oliver Stone serves up violence. <laughs> Thanks to Jeremy Lee and Jackson Boxer in conversation for the blend sessions with Shivas Regal's Scotch Whiskey. We'll be back next week for another evening with two more of our leading cultural collaborators. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts to automatically receive each episode. You can find out more about Shivas Regal Whiskey at shivas.com. From me, Teo van den Bruecke, until next time, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>